Okay. Welcome everybody. Um, I'm here today with Samra and and Brian. Um, Samra, you're chairing the EIKCS meeting. Do you want to introduce yourself and just talk about a bit about the day one program? And then Brian and I might really ask, ask you some really quick questions, if that's okay. Sure, of course. Well, thank you very much for, for having me. Um, I've not been on uh, your Amigos podcast before. Um, and the occasion, of course, is the EIKCS um, 2021 meeting. Um, it's a two-day program. Um, we had the first day today. And of course, you will know that we had to skip last year's uh, meeting. It was one of the first casualties of the pandemic. So we had um, quite a lot to catch up on. I and mean, a lot has happened in kidney cancer. In the- Sam, I'm really sorry. Brian's yeah. at an airport, which makes this quite embarrassing. But why just ignore it's, Brian and keep going? It's real really life. Sorry. It's real life. Perhaps... Brian, are you able to mute, or I can just increase my just my just, just talk more loudly, Samra. It adds that. to the ambiance. Yeah, that that's fine. So, um, uh, maybe just before I talk about the program, I can I can give a, a a quick shout to everyone who's helped to put the the program um, together, the scientific committee, and that includes um, Tom. And of course, Brian was one of our star speakers today. Um, so um, we had um four uh, separate sessions uh, today. The, the first was the surgical uh, panel session, and it, was, it, it actually covered a really wide range of topics um, from cytoreductive nephrectomy to uh, surveillance for resected stage three disease to management of small renal masses. Um, and, you know, it, it always amazes me that, uh, that there are still so many questions in the context of surgery in kidney cancer that are unanswered. Um, it, it sort of, again, highlights the outlier nature of this cancer more broadly. Samra, um, what's the most controversial bit that was discussed at the, that surgical session? So um, the, the, the results of Carmina still seem to be um, being digested by everyone. And, and one thing that Tim O'Brien pointed out is that um, you know, people still need to be referring to their own local experience, which is likely to be substantial for many, um, for many centers. And I think that the application of cytoreductive nephrectomy really um, varies a lot uh, between countries and between centers. But one thing is for sure, um, and that's that surgery remains such a fundamental part of the management of our patients, uh, whether it's cytoreductive nephrectomy or metastatectomy in the context of single site of disease progression or oligometastases. Um, So I think it's here to stay. The other controversial topic... Sam, do you think that's fair? I mean, we do a big randomized trial. We recruit hundreds of patients. We do the best we can. The randomized trial showed the surgery arm did a bit worse and we move on and, and, and don't take that on. Is that something which, I mean, if cytoreductive nephrectomy was a drug, would it get approved? Yes, that's a, it's, a, it's a very good point. I guess the discussion today was reflecting the role of cytoreductive nephrectomy uh, perhaps more, more broadly. I don't know how many, how many places... Um, still proceed to cytoreductive nephrectomy um, without without prior treatment. I mean, um, so so we do. I, I think, Tom, the difference is, the question is, had there been a prior positive study with this drug and then there was this negative study, would the drug have been pulled from the market? Right? That's probably a better analogy. I'll buy that. I'll buy that. I Thank like you. that analogy. Thank you. During the break so, in the the airport announcement, Brian, <laughs> <laughs> pay attention. So so would you would you like to answer that question, Brian? 
Yeah, we're still doing it. I think patient selection is key, right? I mean, that's really the key here. And I, what I was going to ask is, our, I wonder if different countries are selecting patients differently. I mean, my take on it, for what it's worth, is that I think it still has a role in selected patients. Um, but that has to go through a multidisciplinary discussion. Um, and I think there are clearly a group of patients that have a big renal primary with low metastatic burden where it's the right thing to do. Uh, and I think a more complicated question for me now is that patients who do super well on immune therapy, who a year down the line have still got a big primary renal tumor, which is a blast furnace of mutations and development. And actually, you know more about this than anyone else in the world, probably, Samra. What do you think about the dangers of leaving a primary tumor in situ? Uh, yeah, well, you'll, have to, you'll have to indulge me a little bit um, with, a, with a minute or so of, of cancer evolution. I'd really um, like that. I'd love that minute. Can we do that now? So I, I think, you know, what our, our work today has shown is that um, uh, tumours that look very similar on radiology, you know, those very large tumours, 10 centimetre plus diameter, um, and not that different on histology either. You know, they're, they're high-grade tumours um, on the whole. Um, genetically can actually represent the opposite ends of, of the spectrum. Um, so those tumours that are extremely heterogeneous, um, that have been evolved in this kind of gradual way um, to uh, something that's genetically very complex, um, they find a route to becoming aggressive very late in their, in their development. Um, so actually that sort of metastatic potential is something that emerges late. And more importantly, they're tumors that continue to evolve. Um, if you are able to capture that information, that is exactly the patient that should have cytoreductive nephrectomy. Um, and, it, and it goes back to this principle that um, these tumors could be on the verge of um, evolving a broader metastatic potential. Um, and therefore, you are, you're, you're removing that, um, uh, you know, the, the reservoir of ongoing metastases. Um, and could you could you tell that from a biopsy? Like if you biopsied upfront patients, if you if you did a single if you did a single biopsy, um, there are certain inferences that you could make, but you could right. not be you could not be confident that way that you would be. You know, this kind of classification was entirely based on having multi-regional sampling on an nephrectomized right. specimen, where you're able to do ex vivo sampling. Um, so. Um, I think um, that it's it's uh, it's a tall order to make that a priori, but I, I think there are certain rules that could be applied. Um, and, and I'll come on to that more concretely in a moment. At the other end of the spectrum are tumours that evolve in um, a more dramatic fashion. You know, they acquire metastatic competence very early on. They're not uh, you know, uh, they're not heterogeneous at all. We don't have to worry about heterogeneity in these tumours, um, but they have pervasive metastatic competence at the primary site. And if you catch these tumours at the point where you don't see any metastases on, on the scan um, and you do a cytoreductive nephrectomy, these patients metastasize within weeks to months, um, which you, you know, means that they, they actually just had occult metastases to start mm. with. Uh, it, and it's a kind of a max game, you know, if all the cancer cells at the primary tumor site already have metastatic competence, um, those tumor cells have been disseminated already and they're about to explode as metastases. Cytoreductive nephrectomy is not helpful in those patients. But they can be, you know, clinically, 
um, you could see a red herring because of the timing. You've just caught them before they're going to metastasize. And I think Axel Beck has, um, you know, alluded to this in his data um, uh, with CERTIME, I think, where they find that one month post-cytoreductive nephrectomy, around 20% of patients are already progressing. So the question is, how can we, on a single biopsy, uh, predict who those patients are? And I think the answer could be not a single mutation or even combination of mutations, but level of um, uh, chromosomal instability, which you know seems to be the driver of aggressiveness and metastatic competence. So I'll leave it at that because we we, we should talk about the the rest of the the, the meeting. <laughs> so for now, it's going to be probably clinical selection you know, bias and interpretation of data, sort of gestalt in, in approaching patients, but hopefully down the line, we might have biologic tools to select patients. That's right. And I think Fair that enough. also extends that comment, um, Brian, to, to another topic in the surgical session, which was the, the management of small renal masses and whether, you know, it, it is safe to have patients on watchful waiting or active surveillance. There was a little bit of debate uh, on the semantics on that. Um, but, you know, again, the answer will be a biomarker. And I think in a small renal mass, a single biopsy biomarker could actually be reliable. Um, so sure. I do hope that that field will progress um, to a biomarker-driven decision-making sooner rather than later. And Samra, do people feel you should be doing biopsies before nephrectomy or should we be just diving into nephrectomy? Is there a clear feel on that? Some people I speak to like to do it. Other people, there's less clarity. Well, I think, um, you know, even even before we knew anything about genetics of, of kidney cancer, uh, we knew about clinical behavior of high-grade tumors and tumors with sarcomatoid or rhabdoid differentiation. Um, so I, I, think, I think the biopsy um, is not really a point of controversy um, uh, per se. And I didn't get the impression that, um, that there's a variability in that. Um, Samra, let's move on to um, move away, move on to the second section, which um, Brian and I were both involved with, um, which uh, we can cover briefly. It was the systemic therapy section and Manuela chaired it brilliantly. Um, I was a bit incoherent. The, um, the key to that section, I think, was um, Brian, you talked about first line treatment choices and uh, the, the, the Ipinevo versus other systemic therapy debate. We've had that discussion on many podcasts and we're not going to go through it in huge detail today. Um, we can't because there's uh, your plane seems to be taking off anyway, Brian. Um, but the second discussion around Camillo's debate about what you do in second line therapy, I think, was more controversial because why I was surprised by the amount of individuals at that. I felt actually the discussion went two ways in that we all agreed we shouldn't be continuing on immune therapy indefinitely. And then towards the end, everyone said, oh, what about giving epinevo after VEGF TKI immune therapy? And people said, yeah, that's a really good idea. Where are we with that, Brian? And how that because that seemed to be a bit counterintuitive to me. Yeah, I think it just shows you that it's, it was all over the map. And people said, yeah, we should give epinevo in a salvage setting, but then we shouldn't give axipembro or IOTKI. And so that's kind of counterintuitive. And people probably even changed their opinions during the session. So I don't we, we don't really know. We you wrote know. some guidelines, some European guidelines that I talked about at the time, and I'm going to try and get them out as soon as I can, because I'm really, I was, uh, I was, that conversation, everyone felt a bit differently. And I think we probably need to crystallize that conversation a bit more. I mean, I think, you know, IO-based doublet is a frontline standard. I think single agent TKI is a subsequent standard. The role of salvage immune therapy after prior immune 
failure is unknown needs to be prospectively tested in randomized fashion, which is happening. And then you have sort of the wild cards of Lenevrolimus and other approaches, which are out there and have data, but I wouldn't say necessarily widely adopted or used consistently. We had a biomarker discussion and perhaps the biomarker piece, which I was most interested in. And, and Sam, I'm really interested in your opinion. What was obviously my talk was brilliant, um, but <laughs> obviously, but um, but what was I mean, what was your highlight from that? You're probably as well qualified as anyone in the world to talk about this. What was your highlight when those two biomarker talks, Tony's fantastic talk around circulating biomarkers, which bit do you think holds the most promise for the future? So, um, and I'm not just saying this because Brian's on the on the call, but, um, you know, I think Brian's work that was published last year in, in Cancer Cell um, really goes some way to... Um, help us on the biomarker journey, which has been a, a, a sort of one step back, a two step forward journey. And I think we all acknowledge that in the panel discussion today. There are many reasons for that. Um, I, I think what um, we have to ensure on this journey is that we're actually learning biology uh, while we're exploring biomarkers. Uh, and that there is that crosstalk um, between the two, and and I think that's what uh, I think that's what Brian's data shows. Um, so, you know, it's quite it's quite clear, and I think we know that from the clinical data as well that there is this, you know, a binary distribution um, of angiogenesis driven um, and inflammation um, driven uh, cancers. And I think we probably have a rough idea already of how they correlate with genotypes as well. Um, and that PBRM1 mutations on the back of BHL mutations drive a strong angiogenic signal. Uh, and that BAP1 is more um, associated with an inflamed environment. Um, but uh, what was really striking in those data, and I think Brian uh, highlighted this in his talk, um, is that the, the correlation to the clinical criteria that we use, the IDMC criteria, are far from perfect. Um, and we really need to be rescuing patients out of these clinical brackets, um, especially those that, you know, would, that don't necessarily need CTLA-4 and then those that definitely need CTLA-4 yeah. um, and that don't neatly fit into our current category. And I think, I think, first of all, Tom, I think we should start paying guests who pay us compliments on the show, maybe as some sort of incentive. I definitely, a, definitely <laughs> apologize to guests who were invited while we're at the airport. That was, we should certainly do that. Sam, yeah, we should. I, was no, I, wanted, I wanted to say that the, the okay. race is going to be between a sophisticated biomarker approach and what's likely to happen is just two drug regimens, three drug regimens, four drug regimens, right, which is less sophisticated. And we've had this debate before, but, you know, biomarker approaches take time and, and money. And, and usually what wins out is just, you know, sheer pharma-based clinical development. I'm not defending mm. it. I'm just sort of mm. predicting that that's what's going to happen, even though I, I agree we need to start doing the trials. Yeah. And actually, I asked um, Brian, a question in the in the chat box, uh, but he never got around to answering it. Um, I think that was your. Um, it was uh, five thirty in the morning for me, by the way. <laughs> um, which was, you know, how do you actually foresee implementing this particular marker? You know, what what would be the the steps? I mean, I don't think we ever talk about, you know, the practical steps. Yeah, so we're we're going to try and do a prospective trial, you know, based on cluster figuring out if we can determine clusters in real time based on a nephrectomy sample or biopsy and then assign treatment based on that. And there's a lot of informatics lift to assign cluster. It's not trivial. Mm. You know, it's not just IHC. So I don't, I don't even know if we can do it in real time. We're sort of in the operational feasibility part of the experiment. 
but I think that was my second to last slide was that trial that we're at least floating yeah. out there. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see if we can do it. And even, you know, even beyond that, you know, we'll see uh, how attractive this thing is. Because you, you wouldn't, someone would need to then take this on and develop it. Um, um, so how, how does that workflow? Um, Sarah, you might need to repeat that. I'm really sorry. <laughs> you might, I'm so really sorry. I, I was just wondering, even, you know, downstream of the trial, um, you know, what are the actual steps, you know, who would this biomarker be attractive to, um, to then develop as a, you know, as a, as a commercial product? What can right. you learn from, from other tumor types? Yeah, good question. And we're not even doing this in a CLIA certified lab, so we don't really have an eye towards commercialization. It's just hypothesis testing, you know, can, can we yeah. do it? Does it make sense? But, but you're yeah. absolutely right. But you would centralize it, Brian. Centralize it, meaning? You would do it in one hospital. You wouldn't yeah, have every sure. hospital doing RNA analysis. Uh, I don't think that would be possible, no. Okay, we agree on that. So this is going to be logistically very complicated. Sam, yep. last question on this topic. Um, the methylation signatures which Tony presented, do they have legs? Does this something yeah. that you I think mean, Tony's, gonna... to, uh, Tony and, and his colleagues have done beautiful work on, on this and they should be congratulated. And it's quite clear that um, methylation of cell-free DNA, tumor-originating DNA, um, is a, provides a much stronger signal than mutational data. Um, what's clear is that that signal is very good at detecting whether the cancer is there and whether it's kidney cancer. What I don't know is whether it really is going to have a dynamic enough range to tell you about um, changes in response to treatment. So I, I think that's still an open question. So this might end up being more of a uh, kind of early diagnosis uh, type of tool for, for sure. Um, and whether it's, it's going to help us as a predictive biomarker for a specific therapy, we don't know. And actually, to be fair to Tony, he talked at the start about you know, other types of um, liquid biopsies that relate, for example, to an immune signature or a VEGF signature. Uh, obviously, none of these have been particularly su successful as circulating biomarkers. Um, Samra, I saw a documentary last night that was trying to convince me that time is infinite. However, we, <laughs> however, we seem to be running out of time here, which is a shame because we haven't yet got on to David's plenary talk. Um, I know you chaired that session with him. Um, if there were any highlights from David's talk, would you like to uh, <laughs> would, would you like to say what you thought they were? Well, I I'm, it was such an honour to host David today as our keynote lecture lecturer, um, and you know he's made so many contributions to to the field and is very modest with it. Um, what I really liked about uh, his uh, the blue sky vision today was um, the, the world where we are aiming to have survival for, for kidney cancer patients. Um, and really highlighted the the Sorry, sorry. Brian, maybe dial out while she's giving the list of patients. Okay, we'll do I think what David highlighted is what what is the priority for the patients, which is treatment-free survival. Um and treatment-free cure. Uh, so, in, in that sense, I mean, obviously, we've we've got things in the in the pipeline, um, you know, such as adoptive cell therapy and vaccines in combination with IO. Um, and you know, for me, that was the, the, the sort of inspirational um, part of, of what he what he talked about. And I think the concept that he's you know coined with colleagues about treatment-free survival is a very relevant one.
just before we go there, so do you think it's real? Because David made that parallel with testis cancer. While the air person at the airport was reading out the names, we might have missed that. So it's that parallel with kidney cancer and testis cancer that you felt was inspirational. Do you think that's realistic? Or are I, we better I off? Think the, I, I think the reason for the curative nature of uh, germ cell tumours is slightly different to what we're talking about here. Um, so I, I would make the parallel um, more towards hematological malignancies where, you know, you really, um, you know, w- when you decide to do a bone marrow transplant on a patient, it's not because, it, you know, the, the chances of success are 100%. Um, and the chances of mortality are low, you know, it, it, you know, I think that's the, the sort of mindset that we're talking about here. And, and I think we are, we are not yet um, in that mindset, generally a solid tumor oncologist. When David talked about treatment free survival, one of the challenges around that data is that we treatment free survival must mean that you really are curing those patients because patients who are not being cured won't want to stop therapy do you think there's compelling enough data as it currently stands to support that well uh, i'm so i guess david was looking into the future and you know i'm i would be too and with my melanoma hat on obviously um we stop maintenance nivolumab at two years many patients stopped before due to toxicity um and you know the, the five-year um, overall survival data show that that, that plateau is maintained. Um, so I, I think we still have open questions about the, you know, the the, the role of maintenance. Um, although I think we we do have a fair number of uh, patients from the the trials and in real world setting that have stopped treatment for other reasons and that main that remain progression free. Samuel, what do you think the highlights tomorrow are going to be? So I'm really looking forward to tomorrow, not because I'm one of the speakers, um, but because we, uh, we're looking at new directions. Um, and I'm really looking forward to Hans Hammer's um, talk on future approaches. Uh, we're also going to uh, hear about manipulation of microbiomes from Lisa De, De Rosso. Um, and, and I really I think in the light of this conversation about biomarkers and how we actually run trials with biomarkers, uh, we're going to hear from Jan Vano about how they did this in Bionic. Um, I, I said today in the chat that, you know, we need to sir- sign a memorandum of agreement between all of us who work in this field, that we will always embed biological or biomarker endpoints into our studies one way or another. Um, and I, I think we need to start learning about these frameworks from, from each other. Uh, and then there is a basic science session um, with uh, Barbara Seliger, uh, Catherine Friedman and myself really talking about the tumor microenvironment and the role of T cells and B cells. And um, specifically, I'll be talking about what we think might be the source of antigen kidney cancer. And I, I won't give it away. Um, and we have a fantastic uh, wood fire session to finish off with, um, uh, moderated by Chris Wood, um, with all our favorite friends uh, from around the world. So I'm really looking forward to that as well. Samad, congratulations on organising such a terrific meeting under such challenging circumstances. I apologise again for Brian's... um, um, (laughs) uh, It's been one of the more challenging uh, podcasts we've done. It's been highly, highly amusing to Uh, to hear that. Um, I don't know which American accent it is in the background, but... Yeah, I think it was gate A5 was the main problem. My (laughs) my advice to Brian would have been to maybe step away from gate five. My fear is he was supposed to be on that plane. Um, Samma, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to seeing you really soon.
Um, and uh, and thanks for your insight and organising this brilliant meeting.